A few days ago, Diane and I happened to be watching BBC News, and we saw an American politician being interviewed by the British press. This particular politician is one of the many rumored to be running for president. So the British press was really throwing various questions at this person. So one of the press said, are you comfortable with the idea of evolution? And the American politician said something like, I don't remember the exact words, but something like, I am not going to answer that question. That is not something for politicians to discuss. So that was the answer. And the British commentators were just amazed. It was just an extraordinary answer from their point of view. And what one of them said is that there would not be a single politician in Great Britain that would give that answer. Not one. No one would say that in Great Britain. It just wouldn't be an issue. But in our country, it, this represents a question that is not resolved, or maybe I should say it's resolved, but not in the same way for everyone. But it's, an, it's a question in our culture that creates anxiety particularly, I guess, among people who might want to run for president because they feel maybe they can't take either position. They'll lose votes either way. According to a Gallup poll in 2014, 42% of Americans have a creationist perspective. That is, they believe some variation of the story that the world was created by God somewhere around 10,000 years ago. Half, about half of Americans believe that humans evolved, basically in the same kind of way that Amy told the story, about half, and the majority of these say that God guided the process, or some variation, that it was evolution, and also that God guided that process. And then there's another smaller group that says that there was no God involved in that, and that is a smaller group, but it is a growing group, so it's increasing in size, maybe around 10, 12, 14%, something like that. So we Americans are culturally different, at least very different from Europe on this issue, which for much of the world is an issue that is really settled. So the, as I said before, this weekend has been designated as Evolution Weekend and in the United States, there is a group that's set aside this weekend each year, which is the closest weekend to Darwin's birthday on February 12th, for religious leaders to come forth, those who wish to, and to declare in public that they believe that evolution is an accepted truth in our world and also is not incompatible with a religious perspective. There is a movement called the Clergy Letter Project, the Clergy Letter Project, where clergy sign a letter expressing this point of view, a, pers a positive perspective on evolution. This year, 
about 14,000 clergy in the United States have signed this letter. And I am one of them. Out of these 14,000 clergy who have signed the letter, about 13,000 of them identify as Christians, Christian clergy. So that's a wonderful thing to ponder for a moment. Contrary to what much of the public image is, many, many Christians and many, many Christian clergy believe that evolution is a fact and is not incompatible with a religious life. On that letter, there are also signatures from approximately 500 rabbis. One source that I read said that um, out of the four main branches of Judaism, three out of the four affirm evolution to be true. There are approximately 300 Unitarian Universalist clergy, and I'll bet you there would be a lot more, but this thing hasn't been that well publicized. So 300 of us have signed it, and about 25 Buddhists have signed it, and people from lots of other groups. It's just, last time I checked, it was just under 14,000 total signers. It is very important, I think, for us to understand that not all religious people oppose the teaching of evolution. I think that is a profoundly important thing for us to say because the way this is being cast in the public is not responsive to that fact very much. So it's, it, it's, it's an important truth. This is not primarily a conflict between science and all of religion. You know, science is over here, Religion is over here, and they're shooting at each other like the Hatfields and the McCoys. That is not, in fact, what's happening in the world. This is a conflict between science and some religious groups that probably represent, well, in the world, they probably don't represent a majority at all, and in this country represent somewhere around maybe 40 or 42 percent of religious people. So, I hope you'll remember that, and, and uh, not, I, I hope we'll not be drawn into the trap of thinking that all religious people on planet Earth think the same way. It's just not factually true. Charles Darwin, who you have probably heard of, and whose birthday was three days ago, was born into a Unitarian family in 1809. Some of his past... Uh, Ancestors were Unitarian ministers. And apparently, Charles thought about becoming a minister himself, but took the path of becoming a biologist instead. And I, for one, think he probably made the right decision. Darwin's theory that organisms evolved through natural selection caused great consternation among some religious leaders at the time it came out, 1859, but again, not all by any means, and many religious leaders accepted his theory as a legitimate advancement of human knowledge. Among them were most Unitarians and most Universalists who in 1859 welcomed Darwin's theory as a valuable advance in human knowledge. But of course not everyone did, and it's caused a lot of consternation in our culture, which is going on right now. 
in various parts of our country. Why would this idea of evolution be so threatening to some religious groups? I will offer you my thought, which is, I think evolution is threatening to some groups because it seems to take the place of God. And therefore, for some people, it seems to threaten the one aspect of their worldview that holds everything else together. And so I think that for some folks, evolution threatens the very meaning of life. It threatens the meaning of life. And if it were to be generally accepted, it, it threatens life having any meaning at all. In other words, life would be meaningless. And for many people, they don't want life to be meaningless. And you know what? I'm actually one of those people. I don't want it to be meaningless either. But does evolution really remove meaning from life? I can't answer that for everyone because if there's anything we know, it's that people see this in different ways. But I'm going to give just just mention a couple of the major branches of how we might see this. And I want you to know that like a family tree, these are just main branches. And each of these branches branches out into twigs and different kinds of views. It's, it's very complex. There are a lot, of, a lot of possibilities here. Well, one alternative is to believe in creationism, to take the Genesis story literally and hold on to that story and not let it go. And to claim that that is the truth, the literal truth. And as I mentioned, there's apparently about 42% of our population who look at it that way. The biggest problem with this path, at least one of the biggest problems, is that it conflicts with about what 98% of all scientists believe to be true. It just doesn't hold up factually. It's a story that has value, but it's not a story that holds up factually to be true. And I don't see how that problem will be overcome by folks who want to take that path. And I just think that over time, that will become more and more clear. So I don't think that's a good bet. Although people, I believe, believe in religious freedom and people are free to take that. Another fork in the road that one might take would be the path of affirming both evolution and God. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly where Teilhard de Chardin is. He is the representative, one of many representatives of that path. He, com he completely affirms the reality of evolution, but he sees in that the hand of God and that it's really God that has created this entire process and whose creative energy and inspiration is in everything. And, and it's to that him, I'm going to say him in this case because the people who use this uh, tend to be... Uh, See a male image of God. Another branch off that path would be to take a similar path and just say 
it's a female goddess and she is responsible for everything. She's Mother Earth, she's Mother Divine, and it's her body. So that's a variation on that path. Darwin himself took this path of, of uh, evolution and theism early in his life. For many years, Darwin took the path that's affirmed evolution, but also the existence of God. Later in his life, he changed from that point of view and called himself an agnostic. That was, that was where he ended up in his life path. He thought about religious issues deeply and in great detail. The Catholic Church is an example of this idea of affirming evolution and theism both. That is basically the position of the Catholic Church. That evolution is real, all the stuff in the textbooks is real, but behind all that is the hand of God. And it is also the position of most mainline Protestant churches. Those people are not fighting evolution. They're just not. Most of them see evolution and God as realities. A God that started the whole system going and who still may intervene from time to time to accomplish his purposes. Or if you look at it as a goddess, it would be her purposes. Now, this may or may not be your cup of tea, but for the most part, people with this point of view are not challenging the teaching of evolution in schools. They're not interested in that at all. They're fine with that. From this option, we learn two important and related facts. One of them is to believe in evolution, you don't have to be an atheist. And two, if you are a theist, you can still affirm evolution. Those are two ways of saying the same thing, really. So those are important truths. All right, another path. Another path is you could be an agnostic, which is where Darwin ended up, and affirm evolution. Agnostics are generally skeptical about God. They're generally skeptical, but usually say that we can really never know enough to be totally sure of whether there is some, some sort of deity or not. We just don't know. And many agnostics say that thinking about that all the time is not maybe your best use of time. Maybe you should go study evolution <laughs> with that time. It's not something that's likely going to yield a positive result. So don't worry about it too much. Don't put our energy on that all the time. Just let it be. Let it be. We just don't really know for sure. And then, of course, another major path is to be a totally materialist evolutionist, too. And these folks believe that we can best understand the universe in totally materialistic terms, which indeed is the basic assumption of science. And God is not part of that picture. Now, it, it really is subtle because in... Teilhard de Chardin's reading, he talks about the universe in totally re, re, uh, materialistic terms, but then ends up at the end and says praise to God. So, a materialistic evolutionist would not see God as being part of the picture at all. And it just, it's, it's matter and it runs by itself. 
There is a wonderful book that I found in our very own UU bookstore, which is in the Fellowship Hall. Here's the book right here. It's called Evolution and Creationism. Uh, you know what Ringo Starr said? He said, you can learn things from books. <laughs> I think that's a great insight and may not be true that much longer. So I found this wonderful book written by a woman named Eugenie Scott, who works for a group that fights every day for teaching evolution in our public schools. That's, the, that's what she does for her living. She makes a wonderful distinction between, now here's my big subtle point of the day, so, methodological naturalism and philosophical naturalism. I just Hang with me for one minute here. Don't let go. Methodological naturalism and philosophical naturalism. Okay. This is worth understanding. It was an aha for me anyway. So let me see if I can explain it. Methodological naturalism is the basic working assumption of science. And that assumption is that the universe can be explained in naturalistic terms. In other words, by reference only to matter, you don't need God, you don't need a goddess, you don't need any of that stuff, you can just explain it all in terms of matter. That's the, that's the method of science. She calls that methodological naturalism. It's a belief that we can explain things that way. Now, philosophical naturalism, she says, is the positive affirmation that there are no supernatural elements in the universe. And what she says is that is a different statement. That is a philosophical position. That is an affirmation about the way we think things are, that there isn't any god, there isn't any goddess, there isn't a curse on the cubs, there isn't any of that stuff. <laughs> Doesn't exist. That's a hard one to swallow. <laughs> so two different things that she believes get confused sometimes. A, a method of doing science, which is that we do science without reference to any God or anything else like that. And on the other hand, a positive philosophical position that there can't be anything like that. And she argues that those are two different things and that they sometimes get inf uh, confused in the world, which I think is a true statement. And I think it's something worth uh, us understanding. She quotes an anthropologist named Matt Cartmill, and here's what he says. Many scientists are atheists or agnostics who want to believe that the natural world they study is all that there is. And being only human, they try to persuade themselves that science gives them grounds for that belief. In other words, science proves that. It's an honorable belief, but it isn't a research finding. In other words, this argument says that even though science doesn't use God or anything like that, there actually isn't any experiment in science to prove that. It's a scientific assumption. There isn't any experiment to, that proves that life is meaningless. Although many scientists say that that's true. And it, they believe their science has led them to that conclusion. But what these people are arguing is 
that is not a scientific fact, that is a, a stance towards the world. So philosophical naturalism goes beyond just the assumptions of science and asserts that no God exists. People may be convinced of that point of view and they may be scientists, but at least according to my new friend, they are not doing science at the particular moment that they make that assertion. They're just human beings like the rest of us affirming something about the world. So by an, another fascinating example of this same principle is there's a wonderful book by a man named Ken Wilber uh, called Quantum Questions. And in this book, he reviews the writings of all the scientists who worked on the development of quantum mechanics. And he discusses what religious or spiritual points of view they had. And he says that every one of the scientists who worked on the development of quantum mechanics became a mystic. All of them. And none of them, none of them would say that science proved their mystical point of view. So you see, that's that boundary. Out of what they studied and read, they became mystics, but they understood that that was not proved by what they studied and read. It's a personal conclusion that they came to. So it's good to understand the difference between those two. What we do know to a high degree of certainty is that the theory that Darwin first put forth in 1859 has been shown to be true to the extent that we humans know anything to be true. Not that it won't ever change or, or something will happen, and it has changed over the years. We know that is just about as true as anything. But the theory does not overthrow all religion. It certainly does not overthrow the value of meditation or the joy of potlucks or the cry for justice that is found in all the religious texts. It doesn't overthrow all of those things by any means. But it does make certain religious beliefs so unlikely that as a species we need to gently let them go, at least in their literal form. The old stories may still have their charm, but they are not part of Science 101. They may still speak truth to us, as the Genesis story still tells us important truths if you go back and read that story about the creation, I think there are definite truths in that. Number one is that the world is good. The world is good. See, that's not a scientific statement. That's not something you can prove. That's an affirmation of value. It says the world is good. Indeed, very good. It also says that we human beings have tremendous power in the world. That one you could probably prove. And that our ability to know the world and to become self-conscious. You know, that story is really about how we became self-conscious when we woke up out of the previous stage of evolution where we kind of didn't know that we existed and we became aware. That's what happens to them in the garden. They become aware that they're separate. They become aware that they exist and that they're not just 
enmeshed with everything. And it's a crisis. It's a psychological. It, it also gives you knowledge. We are a species that can, can have a certain kind of knowledge. That's, that's what the apple is. It's, it's the experience of realizing we can know things. But we know things as, at a price. And it's a kind of separation from the rest of nature. And that's the way I like to tell the story. It has truth in it. It has truth about the human experience and how we got kicked out of the garden of being totally blissfully unaware that we even existed. And now it's tougher, but we can do a lot more things. In these ways, the story has truth in it. And it's truths that we may not discover in a biology lab. But when it comes to fossils and the age of the earth and how the butterfly got its wings, the time has long since come to listen to the biologists and the geologists and the physicists. It's a time to let go of this very damaging conflict that we have and to give our children the very best knowledge that we have. To do anything less is to put our children at a disadvantage as they enter the world, which needs them to know everything as well as possible. This does not mean the end of religion, but it means that religions will need to change. We might say they will need to evolve, just like everyone else, if they want to survive. They'll have to be different. It's a new world. And as a matter of fact, I think that's a great part of what Unitarian Universalism is about, actually, is how do we create the new cutting edge of what people need in their spiritual lives? And when I say spiritual, I don't imply that there has to be anything supernatural about that. At their best, religions teach us to approach the world with a sense of wonder, a sense of gratitude, and a sense of moral responsibility. The great mystical traditions invite us to see the world as a unified whole. By the way, the great mystical traditions right now are getting a lot of scientific affirmation as people study med meditation techniques. That is a beautiful kind of intersection point that is taking place right now. Those techniques come out of religious traditions. And, but they have measurable effects on matter, on us. And these traditions invite us to see the world as a magnificent display of creativity and power, a power so huge and all-encompassing, so amazing, so awesome, that ancient people who lived in a pre-scientific world tried to find some way of describing how amazing it was, and they said there must be a God who created this. Those insights began a long time ago, and they were right, at least in recognizing what an unbelievably mind-blowing event the universe is. They were right about how amazing it is and it must represent an enormous creativity of some sort. In our time, we will use different words and different images and different metaphors 
But if we lose the sense of that magnificence that the religions tried to express in pre-scientific language, then we'll be losing something very precious to us, that sense of magnificence. And as many authors are saying, we have a fascinating role in this because we're conscious. We're not the only kind of consciousness around, but we, have, we are complex organisms with a very developed, at least for this, this age, ability of consciousness and awareness. And that consciousness makes us observers and appreciators of the universe. Carl Sagan, I don't remember the exact words, but it was, we are how the universe can know itself. We are in this wonderful role of being conscious participants in the evolutionary process at this point, and that what we do has powerful effects. Things like global warming. We are the recipients of the gift of consciousness. A gift that is so great and so unbelievable that we could be tempted to call it a miracle. Let us then not squander that gift but use it to increase the joy of life and to work with that great creative process, however we want to call it, that has many names, and move forward into this great cosmic adventure.